0: Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media montage. We've been meaning to do something for a while on Britain's energy policy and net zero. So for the last 15 years... Britain has essentially nailed itself to a legally binding undertaking to decarbonise fully by 2050. You remember that, don't you, Neil?
1: I'm afraid I do. I was against it then and I am now.
0: (laughs) Anyway, almost everyone in the House of Commons was in favour. I think only two MPs voted against the 2008 Climate Change Act. But politicians have never really come up with a plan to deliver it. And that's partly technological. There literally hasn't been the means to do everything that's needed or... Alternatively, the costs were simply too exorbitant and it's, you know, it's not so long since offshore wind power cost £150 per megawatt hour. So now here we are, it's 2023 and we're that much closer to D-Day. But what are we going to do? Well, we're very pleased to say we found somebody who thinks they have the answer. An old friend of the show, no less. Nick Butler, energy expert, former British petroleum man and government advisor. He's just written a report setting out a possible energy policy, I think fair to say, for the Labour Party, should it get into government, which seems quite likely if you look at the latest polls. So welcome, Nick. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you. Well, perhaps we should start by you describing briefly what it is you're proposing in this report that you've produced, which is called The Role of Public Power. Well, I think that you get the starting point correct, that...
2: People have been talking about moving to net zero and indeed talking about having a sensible energy policy for years now. I mean, we are world leaders, where they are world leaders in promises and pledges and commitments to the mm. future. And there is a huge delivery gap. Mm. And I think the delivery gap shows up not just on net zero. I can hear in the tone of your voice that net zero is not the closest thing to your heart. But I think it's also about energy security and also about jobs and our balance of payments and our role in the world. Having gone through the energy crisis over the last year, we've put a lot of money into protecting people against price increases. That part of it is over now because prices are back where they were before February 2024 and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But it's exposed all the problems in the UK. The fact that we are not delivering on these 10-point plans and and the legal commitment that we have, whether you think we should or not, we're not doing it. Now, the world is also very slow at doing this. There's a new set of data out today of the World Statistical Review of Energy, and it shows that hydrocarbons are still 82% of total energy demand. Other countries are actually beginning to do something more serious about this. now. So the U.S. has come up with this inflation reduction, 370 billion of investment and tax credits and so on, almost all of which is going towards uh, one facet or other of a net zero policy, particularly towards infrastructure. You see a response from the European Union, a net zero industrial act which will use regulation to push people in the same direction. And both of them will help their own industrial bases to adapt to a new world. And then you have the Chinese, who are very committed. They are over-dependent and well aware of that on importing energy from the Middle East and indeed from Russia. And they are very much building up their own industrial base. So where is Britain's future in this? I think we need to have one, and I think we need to invest some money Public money is obviously very constrained, so it can't be all dependent on public money, and I don't think it should be. So the proposal is basically to create an investment fund that can initiate and leverage in private capital to support some of the key things that are needed in the energy transition.
0: I just want to say, I'm not not in principle against net zero. It's not that I start from that. My concern is the pledges and promises bit, that... These discussions always start from the imperative of we have to do this, come what may. We don't start from the perspective of what can we achieve and how, what should we focus on. We start with just blatting around investment in all directions, looking for something that might provide an answer. I'm concerned that that is impractical and also leads to waste.
1: I must say, my heart sinks at most of the things that you've just uh, told us, because it just encapsulates everything that we are worst at in this country. Anything which is a overall energy policy has been, if not a disaster has certainly been a huge waste of money, and I suppose one should be grateful for small mercies that we've all we've escaped from British vault, which was going to be another. £200 million down the drain. But that is typical of the sort of things that will come up if we have a little pot of money which is going to be dedicated to these sorts of things. It will be distributed by politicians to the latest good cause. And I think that way madness lies. I think we have no chance at all of meeting our supposedly legally binding target of net zero. I think the whole thing is completely misconceived.
2: Nick, over to you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's hard to compete on those ideological grounds. I don't start from an ideological hardline position. But I think that there are lots of things wrong with net zero. I don't think we'll ever get actually to net zero. But I think we do need to be conscious of our position in the world. And if we don't do some development of an industrial base here, we will be entirely dependent on imports. We're already becoming dependent on imports of oil and gas because the North Sea is running down. We're still using a lot of oil and gas, and we were we we're supposed to be a world power in wind. Didn't somebody say the Saudi Arabia of wind?
1: Yeah, it was a, a, a disgraced former prime minister, I think.
2: But I think. Uh, if you look at the reality, we have a lot of wind farms, but most of the turbines come from either Denmark or China. We have solar facilities, nuclear plant, almost entirely designed and built in France. And I'm I, not a terribly nationalist person, but I do think there is some need to invest. And I agree, if you did it the wrong way, which is what I'm trying to suggest we shouldn't do, We'd nationalize things and it would all be public money. And I think the scheme laid out in that paper is that it should be some public money, but it will only be spent where you can get the private sector to come in. And what it is really, is about reducing risk for private investors to go into some of these things and they will decide what they are. I'm not laying out a predetermined menu. But I think if we are going to move towards net zero, which we are committed to, and if you don't like that, you should change the commitment. If we we have that commitment, it's cross-party. It's endorsed by this, this wonderful climate
1: commission under Lord Depton. <laughs> John Gummer, as used to be. I'm just
2: trying to put some serious substance behind the commitment without saying we're going to get to heaven by doing
0: that. No, totally understand. I don't want to be ideological about this. I agree with you. I think if we can do this in a sensible way, I'm not ideologically disposed towards oil and gas. But I wanted to ask you a structural question. You talked just now about the idea of co-investing if you like alongside or de-risking, which is really the the method that Joe Biden in the United States. He wants to direct investment towards poor, blue collar areas of the United States, which are going to miss out from not having coal mining and so on and so forth. So there's a full fledged industrial strategy. I suppose my thought is that looking at the menu of things you have in your report, I sometimes wonder if we wouldn't be better instead of doing the kind of Inflation Reduction Act co investment approach simply to have prizes for some of these things and say to people, if you can solve the problem, we'll give you a prize, like the sort of sea clock, Mm -hmm. (laughs) rather than essentially creating businesses around things like British Vault, which turn out to be run by people who use the investor's cash to pay themselves enormous salaries and don't have to achieve anything.
1: I think that's a great idea. After all, it was what produced the first marine chronometer, when the government of the day offered a million-pound prize for the first one that would work at sea, you might need more than that. of course, the great thing about the prize is that it stimulates people. And as of course happened in the end, the government weaselled out of its obligation and never paid up. So nowadays, presumably, they could offer one billion and claim at the end of the day that it's not quite working. Well, I'm
2: not against prizes. I'm a grammar school boy, so I, I always love <laughs> prizes. <laughs> I don't see why we shouldn't do that as well. Yeah. What I'm saying is that we should use some public power. This is a creative use of public power to stimulate activity. Mm. Not to dictate it, not to own it, but I think the government has a catalyst role with its limited resources. And I think uh, this has got to be a non-political creation. Yes, it's I... got to live beyond one electoral cycle. It does in many other countries. I mean, many countries have, in one form or another, a state-led player in the energy business, and some are quite successful.
1: Mm. Could you point to a single example in this country where that approach has been clearly successful?
2: I don't think it's been tried. I mean, we are very neglectful of industrial policy. The bad examples of the past mean that people have shied away from it and the treasury in particular is very averse to it i think that that puts us in a internationally uncompetitive position given what's happening around the world now we could just accept that and just rely on imports and let other people do it here's one example churchill's purchase of shares in bp you When know, and he saw that oil was becoming more important he, he didn't take it over it was government influence government supported And it became a
0: great company. No, I think that's that's an interesting example. And to go back to your point, the the reason why Churchill nationalised BP before the First World War was because of security. He wanted to convert the Navy to oil. And he was concerned that there would be sufficient supplies of oil that could be secured to to make sure that the Navy was never forced to sit at anchor.
1: Mm. So not many in the last century then.
0: I'd say also, I'm just going to rebut Neil now, because I think there is another example of industrial policy. I'm not sure how conscious it was. But I think one of the consequences of the National Health Service was to build up the sort of life sciences, pharmaceutical business, because it was a big customer, and therefore being sure of having a market for their products basically encouraged this business to grow bigger and more successful than it probably otherwise would have done. Right,
2: and I'll give you another one. (laughs) I'm waking up now. I I think another one would be the simple nuclear business. I think if you look at the history after the Second World War, we wanted nuclear for defence reasons, but Mm. that was then developed as the source of energy.
0: Yeah, okay, but that's that's interesting you mentioned nuclear because to my mind, go back to the point That i made at the beginning about the question of of how one should go about this you know there's a lot in your report about sectors which we have no real place in like wind power things which are presently pretty vestigial like hydrogen and which are also quite speculative because hydrogen is green hydrogen extremely expensive substance there's one sector where a you know it will work i.e. you can decarbonize practically using this technology and we also have a business which is developing the technology, which is Rolls-Royce with its its small... They don't have a market for their product. The government is... I'm actually quite in favour of the government enabling, if you have a technology which could be brought into being and could be de-risked and made more affordable to get it up and running so you can build the factories and what have you to... That seems to me to be a, a perfectly reasonable use of uh, public, public investment. I'm glad
2: I have a convert Yeah,
0: Well, only for that. <laughs> I, I think that's a,
2: a very good example. I believe we could do it. I believe the technology works. But nuclear is very rarely done without the involvement of government. Yes, I, I think it would be a very good thing to give Rolls-Royce some contracts to show they can actually do it in practice, and then I think it's one of the things that uh, we could sell around the world.
1: Yes. I mean, if they can make it work at a, anything close to a sort of commercial price. Uh,
2: no, nothing will work if it's now commercial. This is not about continuing subsidy. This is about creating essentially privately owned businesses, but using public money to get over the initial
1: barriers. It's on behalf of the taxpayer, I'm very pleased to hear that. Because usually these things, once they start getting subsidies, they get a, get addicted to them.
0: One of the other points you make, which is about wind power well, and the need, for example, to invest really quite heavily in a more distributed grid to carry electricity from all sorts of remote regions. That's really expensive. And it's something you really only want to do if you're absolutely sure that these technologies, offshore wind and what have you, are going to be absolutely the mainstay of your power grid for a long time to come. What do you do with lots and lots of wind power about the intermittency issue? Do we need to have storage or or do we carry on burning gas or what? First of all, I think you need infrastructure
2: for any move towards electrifying the economy. Whatever your input source is, whether it's wind or nuclear as, as you want or, or, or whatever, the mm. grid is not strong enough, A national grid are very clear on this, to cope with the growth in electricity demand that seems likely on this path to net zero. It is in many ways the easiest way to cut emissions is to electrify where you can, mm. but it will only work if you have the system to take the electricity to the end user, whether it's cars or home heating or any or industrial change, any of those. So I think infrastructure is absolutely critical. And infrastructure, again, is very rarely built just by the private sector it requires some government input or guarantees or support. And I think that is true in almost every country around the world.
0: What do we do about the intermittency if we're building lots and lots of wind? Well, the more wind you have in
2: different locations, that reduces the intermittency. And secondly, I think I included it in the paper, the idea that we should have a grid across the North Sea. So multiple inputs into a single grid, which is managed using best current technology which is very good and i think that that reduces but doesn't eliminate the need for backup there is still going to be some need for backup until we get to a proper energy storage system which is probably not batteries and Mm. therefore i think that that sort of energy storage is another thing that we should be investing in in terms of research and development
0: Okay, so let's let's turn to the to the financial side. Who would you get to run this entity? Who's a brilliant investor who would actually be able to put money? Because it w- it will depend a lot if it happens on having sure. pretty smart investment policy. So who do you who do you get? It's got to be
2: completely credible, and it's got to convince other people to invest in it. Otherwise, it won't work. So mm. I would look to people who run big parts of the energy industry and who know how to do that you need real knowledge and expertise and not least to deal with the political pressures to do the wrong thing. So I think that's very important. It's got to be a professional company.
0: How much money do you think such a venture would need to make an impact on the range of technologies you describe and where would the money come from?
2: It can't do everything. So it's going to have to be selective. I would say it would be pointless to do this with less than 5 to 10 billion a year because the capital requirement in the energy sector is so high that that would be 5 to 10 billion, which would then leverage private capital. So it's it's not all public money. I think if you had less than that, it wouldn't make any difference. I think it needs to be built up over time. And I would see these as this as an investment fund. So you invest to get things going, and then you can sell your share when it is going. You don't need to retain ownership, which of course is the is the EDF model with Hinkley. They, they fund the development, and then when it's done, they can sell shares in a continuing already built operation. That was their ambition. I don't see it as a Something that can be done with no money or next to no money. So I think it needs that. I don't think there's more money than that available, looking
0: at the public finances. So that would come from government borrowing taxation or their entity itself borrowing?
2: Either. To me, that would count as public borrowing.
1: They're trying to disguise the existing green subsidies, which are currently running at about £5 a year, by putting them on to energy bills.
2: Right, but I don't see this as a subsidy. Starting
1: from next month £170 per head.
2: This is an investment not a subsidy.
1: Yeah, okay. It's what uh, Gordon Brown used to say, he never spent money, he always invested it. Absolutely. He <laughs> was good, Absolutely. wasn't he? Well, compared to the current lot, I have to agree.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.